0: This is the Sports and Entertainment Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration, only on market scale.
1: Building your brand is not around your product, so your team and your players, but you build your brand around truly this
2: experience and this community. And we aren't in the baseball business, we are in the entertainment business, the experience business, and most importantly, the people business.
0: Welcome to this week's episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment podcast. I'm your host Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the show. We've got a lot of great stuff as always coming up here on the Sports and Entertainment podcast. Obviously, a couple of great games this past weekend in the NFL when it came to uh, the conference championship games, to overtime games, some controversial refereeing decisions uh, that really has uh, some of the uh, fan bases involved uh, in a bit of a twist, but Overall, just two fantastic football games. Hope you enjoyed watching those over the weekend uh, and uh, are looking forward to an excellent Super Bowl. We're going to try to have some uh, good content regarding that coming up next week as well. Today on the show, we have an interview with Todd Kaflisch. He's the founder of Tech Foundry. and We're going to be talking to him about the intersection of sports and technology, and it really involves how athletes prepare and compete. And they're going to dive into a, a little bit in this conversation about competitiveness, not just on the field or the court, but off the field or court as well in this realm of technology. So how some teams are trying to get that competitive advantage off the court or off the field uh, when it comes to technology. So uh, our correspondent, Sean Heath, is going to be conducting this interview. He is very much in that sports world as well. And so he uh, is really a great person to get to dive into this topic and uh, and get to explore this a little bit more with Todd Kalflisch, the founder of Of Tech Foundry. After that, our market skill correspondent Scott Sidway is gonna dive into a really interesting idea, and that is investing in minor league baseball players. And what that means is investors would be paying a one-time fee to the player in exchange for a cut in their future earnings if they make it to the big leagues. Uh, It's a really interesting concept, and you kind of wonder, is this a smart move for players or investors? And can companies, even companies like Nike or Google or something along those lines, become investors in a specific player and then outfit their investments with the newest tech to maybe try to boost their chances of making it into the big leagues? So it's an interesting concept. Uh, It's one that makes me a little nervous as a sports fan about what this could potentially do to the future of the sport and to competitive balances and things like that, but I'm certainly intrigued, and so our correspondent, Scott Sidway, is going to dive into that topic as well. All of that is coming up here on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast, so sit down, buckle up, and get ready for this episode that is about to come your way. Coming up first is that conversation with Todd Kaflisch, the founder of Tech Foundry.
2: Welcome to Market Scales, Sports & Entertainment. I'm your host, Sean Heath. I love technology, and I love sports, so a natural marriage for me is those two things put together. Over the last 15 or 20 years, at all levels of competitive sports, we've seen technology really start to make an imprint in not only the way we watch these sports but even more importantly, in the way that athletes prepare for their particular sports. Somebody who has quite a bit of experience from the preparation side of this equation is the guest on the podcast today. He is the founder of Tech Foundry, Todd Cafflis. Todd, how are you today?
3: I am doing great, Sean. How are you doing?
2: I'm doing very well. I, You know, when I found out I was going to have a chance to talk to you, I got very excited because you've worked with some really big franchises in different sports not just you know usually when you have someone who works from the technology side they're a basketball geek or they're a football nerd you don't find someone who has such a, a broad interest as you do having worked with some pretty large professional sports franchises and when i found out i was going to get to talk to you i wanted to ask you a technical question but it's almost from an analog standpoint. And I want to go back to the Beijing Olympics when those shark skin full body suits came out and all of those world records got broken. That is a worst case scenario of technology being used in sports because one team had them, nobody else did. That doesn't seem very fair. But if everybody has access to the same technology, well, then it comes down to who uses it best. Talk to me a little bit about the challenges that you've seen over the last few years with new technologies coming into sports franchises.
3: Well, you know, from uh, a competitive you know, uh, perspective, and I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. You know, I, I don't know if everybody would exactly agree with you that, uh, you know, one team using the new technology was unfair, you know, uh, I mean, every sport, and like you mentioned, I've worked with in a number of different leagues and, uh, and teams. You know, I have never worked for one that wasn't uh, working twenty four seven on you know new technology, you know, new training methods, you know, you name it. You know, in order to gain competitive advantage, you know, whether it's you know through data collection, it's through you know new training types, uh, you know, equipment. You know wearables, you know all that type of stuff. Um, you know it's uh, it's an interesting concept, but uh, you know there's everybody's out there trying to you know build you know that competitive edge, you know to uh, to win championships.
2: And it seems like the technology we're seeing now is so dynamic that if you were to choose not. To leverage that technology, you're dooming yourself to failure. Everybody else is going to have access to this, and if you were to choose to ignore it, it would be almost like having a team in the NBA that shoots zero three pointers.
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think really it, it, it's it kind of always been the case, I would guess. You know, in in competitive sports or professional sports, at least, you know, it's just I think you know where Billy Bean, you know, brought Moneyball. You know, kind of to the surface. I mean, it's really kind of kicked the door open on that whole concept. You know, where you know teams now are are doing you know uh, you know analytics and, and collecting data on everything from uh, the amount of sleep that their uh, their players are getting to, um, you know, and, well, and the quality of sleep as well, measuring that through through uh, in, you know technology integrated mattresses and wearables you know to you know their hydration the foods they eat when they eat them you know the amount of practice time they get uh you know and and then also measuring you know how you know like their heart rates and and their their perspiration you know types you know things you know during during practices you know i mean it's getting that sophisticated you know to kind of build that model of the you know the ideal you know athlete you know for those specific sports
2: you know I always thought that technology is such a finite concept it's very mechanical it's very measurable but you have to have a certain degree of imagination to adopt a new technology before everybody else is doing it if you had to choose between the challenge of adopting new technology too early or being too late to the party which of those is the lesser of two evils
3: you know i would say it's probably uh the lesser of two would be too early you know i mean there's there are uh, a ton of different you know types of uh technology integrations that you know teams have tried you know over the last few years that you know have not you know exactly panned out or may have been a little bit ahead of their time type of stuff but you know i think you know where you're seeing you know maybe some of the less traditional teams that are are excelling you know on the court or the ice or the field whatever it is you know are those that you know probably really sort of subscribe to the you know the fail fast sort of uh you know method you know where they're dealing with new technology or or analytics those type of things you know where you know they the organizations you know are giving you know the the team leadership you know that that flexibility that leeway you know in order to you know try things and actually fail you know with the understanding that you know they learn and then adapt and and, uh, you know, apply better, you know, science or technology to, you know, what they're trying to accomplish.
2: I have a vague memory of becoming aware of the concepts of positive visualizations in the sporting realm sometime in the 80s. I may be, my timeline may be off, but I seem to remember reading a story in Sports Illustrated or something at the time about that. And that particular concept seems to have some legs. It seems to have been grounded in some degree of real science. You mentioned that there are some technologies that maybe were ahead of their time or maybe really never had a time. Is there a particular technology that you can remember that? you saw people jumping on board and you thought, yeah, no, this is never going to be a thing.
3: Uh, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, one, one that really kind of piqued my interest, you know, uh, was, uh, you know, the use of, uh, sensory deprivation or isolation tanks, you know, you know, when you're talking about that, you know, positive mental attitude, you know, type of, of, uh, I guess, you know, training, um, You know, that one, you know, seems to, you know, kind of pop up every now and then. You know, I don't know, you know, how successful that has been. Um, You know, plus I think it would be fairly expensive. You know, that's one that probably you don't want to, you know, sink money into and then fail at. So teams have probably been sort of standing on the sidelines waiting for something like that to really sort of pan out or not. Um, You know, other examples, you know... (sighs) There's, you know, probably a lot of the early, you know, type of concussive type of, you know, let's say, you know, prescriptive technologies, you know, that, you know, they would use to to determine if players or whatever, you know, had concussive symptoms or, you know, those I think, you know, were were probably a little bit ahead of their time, but, you know, certainly – you know, on the right track, you know, different types of, you know, measurements, you know, whether it was hand-eye coordination, you know, type of technology or measuring, you know, things now like, you know, eye movement and, you know, stuff like that. But I'd say, you know, those two probably, you know, I mean, the other stuff is fairly easy. I mean, from a tech perspective, you know, the measuring sleep or quality of sleep and hydration and and heart rate and, you know, that type of thing for things like effort equivalency, you know, uh, training.
2: One thing that I really appreciate about the technology that's being used by these elite athletes is the impact it actually has on the medical industry because not all of us are elite athletes, but all of us need to be hydrated, or all of us need good sleep. And the cost of developing these technologies that can be absorbed by a franchise that has the resources to test on these elite athletes, there are technologies that come from the sports world's first that find its way into, you know, maybe my local CVS or maybe to my orthopedic surgeon that I never would have had access to if some, you know, Super Bowl winning quarterback hadn't gone through a surgery and had used that technology in the first place.
3: Mhm. Well, I think, you know, it's uh it maybe is is more the other way even. I mean, other than, you know, uh you know like new like tech, you know, sports-related startups that, you know, are are targeting professional sports and then, you know, gaining success there and then actually, you know, driving market share and revenue by, you know, then, you know, adapting their their product and marketing it into, you know, college ranks, you know, even, you know, high school and little league sports. But really, I think, you know, more often than not, it's, you know, the – the outside you know the business world that you know the traditional business world that you know is adapting or they're they're adapting technologies from there you know into sports you know like the medical industry like you're talking about i mean a lot of a lot of interesting technology there you know on on wearable type of stuff you know to to measure you know you know activity but you know even you know other kind of more interesting you know Uh, technology adaptations are, you know, like uh, player tracking systems that, you know, involved video analytics that, you know, actually were originally developed, you know, in the, the Department of Defense, you know, for tracking missiles in flight.
2: Well, one of the things that is really starting to change and accelerate is the immediate return on data gathering. You know, traditionally, if you were to track uh, a hitter's zones, where he has the highest strikeout rates, where he has the highest contact rates, his hot zones, traditionally, that information was historical. You wouldn't get an immediate feedback, and the batter wouldn't be able to adjust in that at-bat or maybe even that game. Because first the data had to be collated, then it had to be processed, then you had to be presented, and then you could adjust or pay attention to whatever particular issue. Maybe you were turning your heel 10 degrees too soon. Or I'm really curious now, with the advent of AR and VR, do you think we get to a point where a wearable will be able to help an athlete adjust more on the fly
3: you know i i I think that already exists uh and is used in practice but you know those types of of devices or technologies are are currently banned you know by uh, professional sports you know during events um i mean teams are not even able to use real-time analytics you know especially on video uh you know even on like the court side or the sidelines uh, due to uh, you know the uh, parity sort of initiatives of the leagues and and uh, you know trying to, to maintain yeah that fairness that you kind of talked about originally, um, you know I uh, I think that uh, you know there may be some ramifications you know with the new uh, gambling uh, and sports laws that are coming along that you know the leagues may be you know really hesitant to you know start to actually do that type of technology during you know live events just because you know of the implications of potential tampering uh you know uh, i think there's there's it's, it's much bigger than just you know the the fact that, you know, the concept I think is very, it's very solid that, you know, you could, you know, be, be, you know, communicating, you know, with a batter that, you know, you know, a pitcher is, is, you know, showing a tendency on certain types of pitches or, you know, or you can actually predict the pitch by, you know, the way his feet are set or something like that. You know, I think really where, where there's a more probably real time, application is more in fan experience, you know, through data collection and data analytics in real time, you know, where you're able to do things like recognize, you know, you know, season ticket holders or, you know, special people at, you know, that are attending events, you know, and and being able to, you know, reward them on the spot, you know, with seat upgrades or some other kinds of Prize or amenity, you know things like that, or or you know through real time communications based on you know uh, people's you know geospatial you know kind of location within venues and 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 pushing offers and and coupons and things to you know drive revenue at events. Um, there's a lot of lot of technology that you know is is involved in that. A lot of focus with teams now. Uh, You know, as far as the fan experience side of things and the integration of tech.
2: Well, for the final question today, uh, without giving away too much of the secret sauce, is there a technology that you feel is really about to make an impact in the next couple of years, both in the athletic side and the fan entertainment side?
3: You know, I, uh, I you mentioned you know VR and and AR just a little earlier. I think that really, you know, it, it really hasn't sort of found its real place yet. I mean, teams have been using you know VR and like in you know the NFL, for instance, using it to train quarterbacks to you know more quickly identify you know defenses, do defensive reads, and and uh, and you know, for, uh, for past plays that time or just, well, any types of plays really. But, um, but I think that, you know, the, the VR and, and AR is, is really kind of that up and comer that's, it's looking for it's, it's real home. Um, you know, I mean, the fan experience, you know, has kind of played around with it a little bit. Uh, I, I think really it's going to be more, more on the, the competitive side, you know, with the, with the players, And, uh, you know, and especially with broadcast, I think that's going to be maybe where it makes its first really big inroads because there'll be lots of opportunities to monetize that, um, which, you know, is going to drive a lot of uh, revenue into that technology, which, you know, will open more doors, I think, you know, to to that fan experience side and the, you know, in the player development side. Um, But, yeah, I think I think that really you know from from you know my perspective is really kind of where you know the next big thing could be you know in in tech and sports
2: the last question today and this one is going to kind of force you to show your cards a little bit game 7 Stanley Cup finals major league baseball nba or the super bowl which one are you picking to go to
3: um you know i have uh I've been through uh, four NBA Finals championships a couple of game sevens uh, I've been to a Super Bowl um, boy I tell you you know I uh, I've done Stanley Cup playoffs and uh, Winter classic in Detroit uh you know I uh, boy that you know I would I would have to say boy I, you know I, I'd like to go you know back to another Super Bowl but you know, I think a, a Stanley Cup Game 7, you know, might uh, might be the choice. Well,
2: I have to say I approve of that choice. Uh, but that Winter Classic, I don't have any desire to be sitting out in four-degree weather watching a hockey game. I know that's the way it was intended to be played, but I want some heat. I
3: really – I know that makes me a wimp, but – Not at all, man. I tell you, you know, it was uh, – it was, it was a snowing day yeah, there in Ann Arbor at the big house for, uh, for our winter classic, there was 107,000 people there. Uh, you know, it was cold, it was snowing, it was windy. It was, it was one of those type of things that, you know, it, it's great to be able to, you know, tell people you were there, but you know, at the time, I mean, as a fan, it's a big deal, you know, I mean, working the event, it's, kind of like another another game, but with, you know, added challenges. So, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I really appreciate you taking the time today, Todd. This has really been very cool. Today, I've had the pleasure of having a conversation with the founder of Tech Foundry, Todd Calflish. Todd, thanks so much. I really look forward to having a
3: chance to talk to you again in the future. Wonderful. Thank you, Sean. I really appreciate the opportunity. It's, a, it's been a lot of fun.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, go to marketscale.com slash industries. And if you have a chance, subscribe to the Market Scale publications for the latest articles, videos, and podcasts from your favorite industries.
0: Thank you to Sean Heath and to Todd Cafflis for that look there at the intersection of sports and technology and just that arms race of sorts that can occur off the field or off the court when it comes to how teams can innovate when it comes to technology moving forward. Really interesting conversation and I quite enjoyed it. Coming up next, our correspondent Scott Sidway is going to take a look into investing in minor league players. So uh, making an investment a one-time kind of payment and then trying to reap those rewards later. So buying low and then once a player reaches the big leagues, reaping those rewards. But obviously there's some risk involved because there's no such thing as a surefire prospect. We've all heard those stories about players that everyone thinks, oh, this guy can't miss. He's going to be the next big thing in Major League Baseball and then it doesn't work out. So I'm really curious to hear more about this idea, hear the heart behind it, where people are coming from when they pitch an idea like this and the feasibility of all of it. I think one of the biggest concerns for me is the competitive imbalance this could create for specific teams, uh, and maybe a a guy becomes a higher draft pick because they have the backing of a Nike or a Google who have invested in their future, um, and... A team would then think that that player is gonna have a better shot at making it in the long run or something along those lines Whereas another player might not have that opportunity i i don't know i'm really interested in just dig- digging more into this never heard of anything quite like this before so really curious to learn more about it so our own scott sidway is going to take a deep dive into that coming up next here on the market scale sports and entertainment podcast
1: look we know professional baseball players make a lot of money right well on the big league level yes but on the minor league level not so much minor league players really only make somewhere between eight hundred fifty dollars to two thousand dollars a month that's At the bottom end, $10,000 a year. So now what we're seeing is we're seeing this trend specifically from the company Big League Advance, where they're going to these minor league players and they're saying, hey, we'll cut you a check, say, for $300,000, but in exchange, you give us X percentage, such 3% or something, of what you get when you get to the majors. So we wanted to reach out to a sports marketing expert about this, and that's where we turn to George Belch. He's a marketing professor in the sports MBA program from San Diego State University, and let's start with this when this concept first or you first heard about this concept especially when it terms it relates to baseball players were you surprised
4: yeah i wasn't totally surprised because this model has been around for many years particularly in uh, golf where a lot of people would invest in up-and-coming golfers Um, it could be the people around the club Uh, you might be an aspiring golfer to trying to make it uh professionally and you know, it takes a lot of money to uh, go out on the road and to support yourself, and often you, what golfers would do is get ten or twenty people from their uh, country club or from their host club to to invest in them. Basically, uh, boxing has used the model uh, as well. Um, I think this is a little different because now we're actually seeing this coming to Major League Baseball, uh, which has always been looked at as. More of a team sport, and with the team supporting the players rather than the players being independent contractors as they are in golf or boxing.
1: Does the the money you know with the golfers just to kind of compare it to that other sport when they're trying to make it through the ranks and get to be where they can qualify for the PGA? Is it as much a struggle as it is for minor league baseball players because that you know getting drafted to a, a in the MLB draft seems huge, but when you're only making ten thousand dollars a year. Like it's That's not a whole lot of money. What's the struggle like for, for golf golfers?
4: Well, it's in, in extremely difficult for both. I mean, you're talking about trying to make uh, a sport where only a minuscule number of people ever can really make it. If you think about how many right. people can actually make it to the PGA Tour or even like a Web.com Tour, um You know, it's extremely small, given the number of people out there. And, of course, we know the odds in baseball, probably, of the people who sign a minor league contract. Less than 10% of them are ever going to have a chance to make it up to the show. So both sports are extremely difficult.
1: Right. And so, you know, shifting back to baseball there, like you just said, you know, the companies like the one we just mentioned, Big League Advance, they're cutting these $300,000 $300, checks for, you know, a potential investment later in a percentage of their major league contract. So is this a model that you think can work on a level like baseball where the the risk is so high?
4: Well, I would assume that they've done their homework. Um, you know, If you yes. look at um, big league advance, I think uh, Schwimmer is somewhat of an analytics person, and I'm sure he's run the numbers many times because he knows that the vast majority of the players that he invests in just simply aren't going to make it. There's not going to be any real return on them. So what you're trying to do is really hit a few home runs on players who could really – make it not only to the big leagues, but could get through that free agency period. And then, or to the period where they, you know, become for arbitration, uh, get through arbitration, everything else, and really get that big contract. So when you think about, we're talking about players who first of all have to make it to the major leagues, which is extremely difficult. Then once they get to the majors, they basically have to do fairly well. um, And they have to be able to get to that next contract, Where the real payoff is going to come. So um, he's going to need, you know, several big home runs from players, players who really hit big contracts to make this whole thing work.
1: And by the big contracts, I mean you're you're talking like the you know the projected Bryce Harper deals and Manny Machado deals, where we're talking well over two hundred thousand or two hundred million, excuse me, uh, through the duration of the contract.
4: Well, it may not have to be exactly that much because those are far and few in between. I mean, sure. uh, but you do need those players who clearly can get uh, those, uh, you know, perhaps $10, $20 million dollar contracts. You need a lot of those. The, the likelihood that the real blue chip players like the Harpers, machados are probably going to go with big league advance it's probably small i mean these are players right. that know they know that they're they have a future it. and and you have to also remember they have agents and those agents are going to invest in them so what you have here is i think you have a situation where some of the real blue chip players i mean th- again this is going on i mean we know Players who prepare for the NFL draft, the agents support them for several months while they're getting ready, and they're they're doing the same thing. They're investing money in them, they're putting them up to train, they're hiring trainers for them, um, and you know they're giving them. But they're probably not putting up the kind of money that we might be seeing here. Being and I'm, I'm
1: glad. Go- I'm glad you brought up agents because that's another factor a lot of people don't think about and when we shift to the athlete's perspective here I'm I'm going to ask if you think this is a good move for athletes to, you know to take one of these big lump sum checks because yes you know they make very little money in the minor leagues I mean $10,000 a year is nothing but is it worth it for an athlete when you consider the fact that they're having to cut an agent a percentage of their earnings at some point and then taking on money from a big league advance or something like that having to cut them a check is this is this maybe too tempting of an offer for them to pass up or is this a good move for these minor league players
4: Well you know what we would like to do is have the minor league prospects sit down and really think through this whole thing to pencil out all the numbers to think about how much might have to go to their agent um, you know what the payback's going to be. But I think what we have to realize is that the, as you noted earlier, Scott, the, the monies are just so small. Um, mm. We're asking these guys to play minor league baseball for10, fifteen thousand dollars a year. And you know, it's tough out there. And if they had that additional money that would allow them to perhaps live a little better, be able to eat better, train better, Uh, anything that could help them improve their prospects of making it, that's where I think it could be valuable. But uh, they really do have to sit down and think through all the numbers. And, again, I think we come back to the player kind of has to sit there and look and say, well, what's my probability here? What's the likelihood that I could make it? Um, You know, the tempting thing here is, wow, look, this is some immediate money I can get my hands on. And, unfortunately, we know – you know, from past history, that uh, professional athletes don't do the best job of managing their money, um, <laughs> especially at early ages, and particularly when you're young. And I think what we have to do here—it's easy to sit back and be critical of these people—and we have to put ourselves in a situation where. It, we're not necessarily even talking about people uh, in their early 20s. We could, we could be talking about teenagers in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending upon what type of family background they came from, uh, what type of money might be available there, um, they've really got to sit down and, and pencil out everything and, and think about it. But you could see where that money could be pretty enticing uh, to them.
1: Well, and you mentioned, too, the money that could go towards things like, you know, eating better and training better to improve your chances. That kind of leads me to uh, my last question for you, George, in that could you see maybe some of these bigger athletic companies like, say, a Nike or a Rawlings, the guys who make the baseball gloves, maybe adapting a similar model here and saying, okay, we want to try to invest maybe not in a Bryce Harper because when he's in a minors, he's going to make it. But like you said, these blue chip guys. Invest in that guy, maybe – send them the $200,000 check, maybe send them some training equipment and set them up on a fitness plan on the company's bankroll for that investment down the line Of the percentage of... Do you see this maybe going to that next level and seeing some bigger companies get involved or would this not even really be up their alley?
4: I don't think that this is what they're necessarily going to do um, because that's not the business they're in. Uh, Nike, other athletic companies they get involved with these people more as a uh, signing them as a potential sponsor or endorser and in many cases they already have contracts with them but their goal is to get these people wearing their shoes using their uh you know their gloves or whatever the case may be but i just don't see this as uh the best return on investment for them i think if they wanted to do it obviously they would have more resources but i think they know there's a lot of risk associated with this and for a company like a nike uh, you know wilson or rawlings they have to say you know what there's probably better ways for us to spend our monies uh to develop new products to invest in these people as potential endorsers rather than actually uh paying their salaries those early years
1: Right. In the end this is all essentially an athlete, you know, I, I kind of think about I immediately go back to Joe Flacco in the NFL when he was in his contract year and decided to bet on himself, right? And 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 to hope he had a good year to get that big contract instead of take the cheaper contract with the uncertainty. Isn't this what this really is all about when you talk about these companies big league advance it players making the choice to gamble on themselves or not?
4: It really is. I, I think if you're a player who's fairly confident uh, in your ability to make it. And again, if you have the support system in particular, that's going to help you. But again, now what, what's interesting about this, I think there's one other angle here. You might be looking at many of the players coming up from Cuba, some of the Latin American companies uh, or right. countries, um, You know, where this probably looks like a small fortune to them. And right. if they could get some monies that could be used by their families you could see them as potential candidates who might really jump at this opportunity I mean if we look at the average American player you look at this and say uh, okay this is good money it's not life-changing as much as it might be for a uh, Latin American player coming uh, from a very very poor background so that might be an opportunity and we know a lot of those players are, are increasingly becoming a big part of the big league rosters and are very talented
1: yeah, and it's just going to be a case-by-case basis, I imagine.
4: It really is. And I, I think what you're doing here, you you know, you, you're kind of playing the odds here. I mean, I, I'm sure the swimmer and his group, and he has some smart people working with him, they're sitting down, they're crunching the numbers, they know what the numbers look like. Um, obviously, they've gotten some investors. It's going to be interesting to see how exactly this plays out over time.
0: Thanks to Scott Sidway for that look at investing in minor league baseball players as a potential way of getting a big payoff in the end if that player makes it to the major leagues. I'm certainly intrigued by this idea. I don't know how much I buy into it, but I'm very, very much intrigued about it moving forward. That is all we have time for on this week's episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. We appreciate you listening very much. As always, we have fourteen industries that we cover at Market Scale, and so we have industry verticals for each of those particular industries. So, uh, if you're interested in things other than just sports and entertainment, and want to check out professional audio video, we have a vertical for that. Uh, you know, if you want to check out the intersection of AV and sports arenas, we have a podcast that was based around that topic in that Pro AV vertical, so you can go check that out as well. Also. If you're listening to this podcast and you're thinking, you know what, my brand, my team, my organization, my company could really use a podcast like this to tell more about our story, to tell people about what we're doing, that's what Market Scale is here for as well. So make sure to get in contact with Market Scale if that's something that you're interested in. We would love to tell your story on our podcasts. We will be back soon with another episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for listening.